This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. And good morning, good afternoon, whatever the case may be. You're here live with Dr. Jeff Werber, your host for the next 30 minutes here on Pet Life Radio's Ask the Vets with Dr. Jeff. And uh, we are here for you. We're here for you pets. We're here to talk about anything you want to talk about, though I always come prepared. And um, we uh, would love to hear from you. Any questions you have, uh, now's a great time to ask them because it's free. doesn't cost you a dime. Thanks to sponsors, our Brevecto, uh, More Than a Cone, Raising Awareness of Animal Welfare Through the Arts, Save This Life Microchip. So um, anyway, one of the things that we, well, we need to give you some ways to get a hold of us. So easiest way, toll free, 877-385-8882. Once again, I'll write it down. Go ahead, 877-385-8882. And you can also, probably more fun, better yet, is join us live here on using Google Hangouts. To do so, just click on Pet Life Radio and you will click on the Ask the Vets with Dr. Jeff tab. And if you scroll down, you will see a link to Google Hangouts left by Mark, our wonderful producer. And um, you can join us live if you have a phone with a camera, which it's pretty hard to find one nowadays without, or a computer, your laptop. Go ahead and bring your pet. Uh, let, let's take a look at your pet as well. And um, we could talk about anything you want to talk about. Anyway, so I love to kind of peruse the news websites. And uh, we'll talk about that. Then there's something I also want to talk about. And it was so interesting because it was something I wanted to talk about today anyway, because there is so much controversy around this subject. And sure enough, as I'm going through the AVMA Smart Brief, which is the American Veterinary Medical Association Smart Brief, there one of the points was a new study or new recommendations by the American Veterinary Medical Association about what to do and how to do about this subject. And I'm going to keep you on the edges of your seats. So we're not going to talk about it. It's one of those things. It's, it's a tease. Uh, you know, like they tease something and they say, well, then you got to listen to, you know, 10 minutes worth of commercials just to come out and hear what the, uh, what it was, what the answer is. So I'm going to do the same thing. But uh, it's a pretty controversial hot topic right now and very, 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 very important to your, to the health of your pets and to your sanity. So now, of course, you're going to want to hear this one out. So anyway, couple things first. We did get a couple of questions from our listeners. One comes from Diane Rock, and it's really a good point. She asks about small breeds. How long physiologically can they go? Can they go longer than eight hours? Can they even go eight hours without having to go to the bathroom? And if not, what do you do? Do you want to you know, continue to crate them? Do you want to put like wee-wee pads or something like that? And it's interesting because she had read something like 30% of People that own, live in like the condos, the, for example, we have here the Wilshire Corridor, these all tall apartment and condo complexes, you know, they have balconies, but obviously you want to be very, very sure that your balconies are secure, that if, if you know, one of those things with the, the wooden or the iron slats that the dog can't fit between, you might put some plexiglass across or some sort of netting to prevent that. But what do you do? And so, you know, it really, it is very, there's no one answer because every dog is different. Now, I have two small breeds. I also have two big, but my small breeds, my Frenchies, they can go eight hours. But interestingly, what I'm noticing is my older one, who's 12 and a half, almost 13, he's, uh, we, we see some accidents. Now, 
Are we seeing the accidents because he physiologically can't hold it in? In other words, his bladder gets weaker. Or is he just saying, you know what? I'm old. I'm tired. I know I'm supposed to wait, but you know what? I, I don't give a damn. I'm going to be right here on the floor. And you, sometimes you wonder, is it a dementia? Is it a weakness? And every dog is different. So what I would recommend is individualize it for your pet. If you know that your pet is having issues, give some sort of uh, location, whether it's a wee-wee pad, whether it's the, the fake grass out on a balcony on a doggy door, whether it's just a doggy door to go to the backyard, whatever it is, you want to make the necessary arrangements to do so. And you got to just kind of play it out and try. So I would say that if you have a small breed and you are starting to see more accidents, especially in the dog that was well house-trained and didn't have accidents, a couple of things you want to do. First of all, medically, you need to check the urinary tract because dogs that have some sort of, well, I'll, I'll, let's play it backwards. We know that the bladder sphincter muscle starts to weaken as dogs get older, and therefore they lose some control, and they might leak. They urinate. They can lie down. They, they It even could be when they're asleep and they're unaware of it. We call that incontinence. But what's interesting, just like when that sphincter muscle is weakened and the urine can leak out, so can the bacteria, typically bacteria from around the anal area, creep up that weakened sphincter. So we also see more incidences of urinary tract infection. So it's very important to know, don't just try to treat the leaking or accommodate the dog. You don't want to necessarily withhold water. So yes, yes, you can use a crate. That might help. Yes, you can use wee pads. You can use the, the artificial turf, but make sure that your dog or cat, mostly dog, does not have a UTI, your neurotract infection. So before you do any attempt at behavior modification or accommodating the situation, make sure you have your pet checked out first. And uh, whatever you've tried, if it works, guess what? We want to hear about it. So you can always get a hold of me, Dr. Jeff, Dr. Jeff, at PetLifeRadio.com. Next was, this is a letter from Selena, and she has a pet named Lucy. And this is also something that's very, very common. Lucy is well house trained. But in order to get there, it sounds like Selena was doing everything right, and she was taking her out frequently. And then when she would come back in the house, she would give her a little treat. Well, now, of course, Lucy's well-trained, is house-trained, but guess what? Every time she comes back into the house, of course, what does she want? She's looking for that treat. It's conditioning. So what I advise people to do is when you are using any kind of food treat reward, and and I'm not against it. I think it's very effective. Um, A couple of things you should know. Number one, size does not matter (laughs) when it comes to dogs and treats. So, and that is that if you give them a little piece of, I don't know, turkey breast and a little, little morsel or a full slice to them, the enjoyment, the satisfaction is the same. So the smaller, the better. And also, because if you are doing something that is going to require a lot of food reward at the beginning, then once they get too stuffed by eating big pieces of whatever the treat is, they will no longer perform because guess what? They don't care anymore. So it's always better to give a very small piece. They will actually perform longer in anticipation of getting that small treat. So, but what happens when now whatever behavior you are attempting to mold. Now, the pet is fine. What do you do about the treats? They want the treats. Here's a couple of things I recommend. Number one, there's something called operant conditioning. And that is, again, it's another association. So when you are about to give a dog a reward, a food reward, a a food treat, couple it with something, 
either a good pat on the good boy, good girl, hugs, hugs, kisses, kisses, and then the treat. It could be the clicker. You've heard of clicker training. You click and then give the treat. So pretty soon what happens is the reward could be just the click or just a pat on the head or just the whistle or just a little you know, kiss, whatever it is, and they feel equally as satisfied. And another thing you can do, and you can also incorporate this with operating conditioning, is what you do is you start now patting the head, doing the click, whatever it is you want to do, and give the treat maybe go two or three times with just that, and then the third time give the treat, and then maybe the fourth time give the treat, and then the tenth time give the treat, right? So what happens is you keep them guessing. They know they're going to get it. They know that that pat on the head, the click, whatever it is, means that in anticipation, but they don't always have to get the treat. But trust me, they will perform the next time and the next time. And then what you do is you keep just randomly throwing in the treat in in association with the other praise, whether, as I said, whether it's a click, whether it's a pat on the head, whether it's a kiss, kiss, whatever it is. And you will keep a dog performing forever, but no longer needs the treat forever. And every every now and again, you can just throw in the treat and that'll just keep them guessing. So uh, that's the solution. And you can start doing it now with any dog and uh, you will see it's going to work just great. So this was um, interesting because this is something that I've spoken about often. And uh, it's great when I see these things on the Smart Brief or the American Animal Hospital Association websites because you think that your problem is so unique as a pet owner, as a pet parent, and we think as veterinarians that, oh, my God, maybe I'm having a problem. That, you know, well, it turns out that it's the same thing. There's nothing new under the sun, as the expression goes. So this is called the fat cat talk challenge. And apparently, and I've noticed this before, obesity is rampant in our pets. 50 plus 53% of the dogs, 55% of cats in the U.S. Are, are overweight or obese. And interestingly, the statistic is, and I'm not, I, I can't see you, so I'm not pointing any fingers, but... of overweight pets belong to owners who themselves could lose a few. So the embarrassment is that when a client is sitting there with their heavy pet, there's a 75% chance that the owner sitting there who's listening to the veterinarian is also overweight. And veterinarians get very, very uncomfortable, awkward to talk about obesity and overweight and all the problems sitting in front of a person who is overweight. And I say, wait a second, time out. First of all, I want to know how many people out there that really are overweight look in the mirror and see this svelte, beautiful, slim body. They know they're overweight. So when I talk to them, I'm the opposite. You know, I talk about how important it is for exercise. And by the way, getting out there and spending time with your pet, it's good for both of you. It's good to burn those extra calories. It's going to work well for you too. But it is amazing to me that it is a subject matter that many of us try, it's like, you know, taboo. We don't want to talk about it as if the person doesn't know that they too have a weight issue. So uh, anyway, my recommendation is when you have overweight pets, very simply, you have to talk to your veterinarian, make sure there are no health issues, and then you are going to limit the amount of caloric intake, sometimes by as much as 30 to 40%. That means you're going to have to reduce by 30 to 40%. That's amazing, but you need to do it. And uh, also, of course, exercising more, which, again, I don't see you, but I will tell you, either way, it's good for both of you. There was a man bitten by a rabid coyote in Oregon, so uh, be careful. 
be careful out there. And we see, I mean, even I live in a suburban area in Los Angeles and we see coyotes. You know, there's so much construction going on up in the hills and you know, like the Hollywood Hills, the, uh, the hills above Beverly Hills, off of Mulholland, this famous street, that we are driving the coyotes down into the flats and they are hungry and they are looking for food and they are eating outdoor cats and they are attacking small dogs. I mean, literally, even though my small dogs are very well trained, when I walk at night, I always put a leash on them only because I don't, I don't, it's not them I don't trust. I don't trust the coyotes. Uh, this was really cool. Five military dogs, four Labradors, and a German Shepherd were recognized by the Army for their courage as bomb detection dogs. And it's amazing how, you know, it doesn't surprise me that to have of these five dogs, four of them were Labradors because labs, as you know, are hunting dogs. And one thing we know about hunting dogs, they have to have a couple of things. They have to be, first of all, very quick and agile. And they have to have amazing senses of smell. And knowing as Labradors as I do, because I've had them for over 40 years, they have that amazing sense of smell. You can't hide anything from a lab. So anyway, but uh, Labradors is a shepherd, and I think that's great. The next story I kind of love because I love big cats. And I don't mean big domestic cats. I love lions and, and ocelots and cougars and mountain lions. I think they are so magnificent to watch. And, um, you know, when you see these videos about these guys that have raised these cubs and now they're huge, full grown, you know, lions and tigers and they're running up to their trainer or their whoever raised them and putting their big fat feet on top of them and licking them. It's like, I'm jealous. It's so gorgeous. Anyway, they found that mountain lions, it used to be thought that cats were less social and they didn't have this social interaction that so many, you know, other species do. Well, it turns out that the mountain lions, they did a study and they do interact with each other, usually peacefully and frequently they interact with each other and they share food. And if something is done well to one, they reciprocate with the other. And they actually do, they've created these units where they are social, they can live together. And yes, they do things on their own as well, but they will come back and share. I think that is really, really cool. Beware. This is also important as we go into our break. Beware of websites selling medicines. I know it's less expensive. I know that it's very stimulating and you really think that, oh my God, I'm getting such a great deal. However, there are a number of these websites that have been caught for selling the following, unapproved or expired medications for pets, making fraudulent claims, and also improperly dispensing prescription medicines. So what we do is, and I'm sure a lot of more veterinarians doing it, we know that there are good products out there and they're priced very well. Many of us We'll do our best to price match. You have to understand one thing. Many of us that have owned hospitals have tremendous overhead. I mean, tremendous overheads. These sites don't. That's number one. Number two, as you know, just by going to Costco, that when you buy in bulk, you can get really good pricing. So when you're ordering onesies and twosies, we're not going to get the same price benefit. The price breaks. Whereas these websites are ordering by the thousands and they negotiate really, really good deals, which of course they can pass on to you. So yes, there are some pros, but understand there are some negatives. There's no personalized attention, no one to really talk to you about what you're using, why you're using it, how you should be using it. And of course, when stuff gets used, you know how many times they play bait and switch? Now you'll order something, you want name brand, you want something, and all of a sudden when it comes, it's a generic, and it's really an unapproved generic, and they say, oh no, we just ran out, but this is just as good. So don't be fooled. Check with your veterinarian. Many veterinarians will do their best to, to price match as best they can, but you know you're getting a real deal. So uh, anyway, 
With that, we're going to go into our break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about this very, very important topic that you all should know about because there are and have been many changes in our recommendations from the veterinary world, and you really need to know about them. Why? For good reason. For your pet's health. So we'll be right back here on Pet Life Radio's Ask the Best, Dr. Jeff. Don't go away. We'll be right back right after these messages. Stay tuned. As a dog, I know a lot about fleas and ticks, so trust me when I say no other tasty chew protects dogs as long as Brevecto. One Brevecto chew keeps fleas and ticks away for up to 12 weeks. Be a good human and ask your vet about Brevecto. Brevecto may cause vomiting. They called it elephant skin. It was rough, wrinkly, like a Brillo pad. His hair was falling out in clumps. Petey stopped eating and all his hair fell out. Our golden retriever, Sundance, he scratched incessantly. There was hair all over. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. 859-428-1000. The omega-3 fatty acids. Flaxseed, zinc, alfalfa. The digestive enzymes that are cooked out of regular dog food. Dynavite is nutrition. Within two weeks, the shedding slowed down to almost none. The scratching went away after a few days and... Sundance's coat was starting to get shiny and glossy. It's a 180 turnaround. His skin has cleared up. He is not in pain. If your dog has shedding, dry skin, excessive scratching due to Dynavite. 859-428-1000. 859-428-1000. Dynavite for life. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E oh. dot com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com And welcome back. You're here live with Dr. Jeff Werber. We'd like to hear from you if you have any questions about things we just talked about or training. Reach me at 877-385-8882 or come online to Pet Life Radio, click on Ask the Vets with Dr. Jeff tab, and go to the Google Hangout link that is there right on the web page. So um, anyway, one of the things that I'm hoping you're all so eager to hear what we're talking about, and it's very obviously a very important topic. I know you've heard about it. Maybe you don't know some of the new recommendations, and that is spay and neuter. And yes, of course, we want to have our pets spayed and neutered. It's a terrible overpopulation problem. Of course, if you are a legit, responsible, educated breeder, and this is what you do, then we can talk about spaying neuter when your pets are considerably older, but still something very important to do. So as far as cats, recommendations haven't really changed much. And that is if you have a sort of a, a your privately owned we're going we're going to separate the shelter world and the rescue world for a minute and let's talk about household privately owned cats and the recommendations still are about the same and that is usually the females you you, you ideally like to get them before their first heat um now remember cats are seasonally polyesterous so we don't really always know when that first heat is going to come because it all depends on their age in re- relation to the season they cycle often every 21 days during the spring and summer when the days are longer and they'll go into almost a complete anesterous, no cycling during the winter. So we call that polyesterous seasonally. But with cats, we still recommend maybe by five to six months of age, as soon as their adult teeth are completely erupted, completely in, and all of the baby teeth, the deciduous teeth are out, it's time to spay or neuter 
And the reason why we like to wait for that is that if, in fact, some of the, the adult teeth are in, but not all the baby teeth have fallen out, we would remove them at the same time. So it's very silly to anesthetize an animal, do a spay neuter at, say, four months, and then a month and a half later, when you realize they have deciduous teeth, you got to knock them out again. Sheer stupidity. And, of course, you are increasing the risk, the anesthetic risk. Now, shelter cats, a totally different story. Because cats, you know, with cats, many of them are, are left outdoors. There is a huge overpopulation problem when it comes to cats, especially during spring and summer when this is their season. Then it is still recommended early spay-neuter programs. I am not in favor of them for non-shelter or rescue situations, but I, I do believe that there is a reason. You know, just so you know, let's give you a little history. Years back, what they used to do is have, they used to give like these certificates, all right? And you could bring your pet in when it was older with a certificate for that free spade or neuter. And what happened was most people didn't use them. So even though it's free, they, they kind of paid for it in advance with their adoption. They got this, this spade neuter certificate for them to use it, and um, they never did. So the whole industry kind of said, you know, wait a second, time out. We really need to do a better job. So we're going to do this early spay neuter. It was tested. It was safe, et cetera, et cetera. So that's cats. Now let's talk dogs. Dogs, totally whole different world now. A couple of things we know for a fact that the incidence of breast cancer is reduced to almost zero if you spay a dog, a female dog, prior to her first heat. Keep that in the back of your mind, okay? Almost zero. If they have one heat, their first heat, seven months of age typically, if they read the book, of course, and you spay them prior to the second heat, your risk reduction drops to about 88 to 90%. Still pretty darn good. So we would recommend that ideally spay them before their first heat. So, but again, let's go back to the teeth. Same story with the teeth. If you have a private situation where you have a real home, good, you know, good adoption home, do not do it until all the teeth are in and all the baby teeth are out because you don't want to anesthetize twice. Small breeds, notorious for not losing all the baby teeth on schedule. So we have retained deciduous teeth very, very, very commonly in small breeds. Therefore, we want to wait at least till they're six months of age. Now, What's so interesting is, as we're learning more and more from a hormonal standpoint, from a growth and development standpoint, from a bone standpoint, there is empirically data that is supporting the notion that dogs that are early spayed have higher incidence of urinary incontinence, we talked about that earlier, when they're older. So now the thought is there must be some some benefit to the female hormone influence on the bladder on the dog as he's developed, she's developing that will help prevent that sphincter muscle from weakening when they're older. And therefore, many now are saying, you know what? Let them have that first heat. We still get great breast cancer, mammary cancer reduction, risk reduction if you let them have one, but get them before the second. So now many of us, myself included, are leaning towards waiting a little longer. Let them have one heat. Now, for some reason, you absolutely don't want them to have that first heat. Understandable. I'm not going to argue, but at least wait till all the teeth are in. Again, when it comes to shelter or rescue dogs that are going to a home, they really need to be spayed before they are adopted out, and we have to run the risk. In the long haul, it's worth the risk to have to possibly anesthetize them a second time to pull those baby teeth in a small breed, or the potential, never really scientifically yet proven, of the urinary incontinence issue as they get older, because that we can deal with. There are medications, there are ways to deal with it. But man, having those unwanted litters and thousands and thousands and thousands of puppies being put to sleep just because there are not enough homes, that 
is really not cool. That's not what we want to do. So therefore, you uh, shelter situation still as little Tino puppies before they get adopted. Now, what about big breeds? So the latest now in the large breeds is we definitely want to wait. And the reason for that is, a again, a new study. Though it was done on Rottweilers, there's no reason to believe that genetically a Rottie or whatever that dog, that breed has that causes them to have pretty high incidence of bone cancer later is just for the Rottweilers. So I don't think it's isolated just the Rotties. So I think any large breed, because we see bone cancer in many, many, many large breeds. So now the thought is when the study was showing a 65% greater incidence in long bone cancer in males that were pre-puberty neutered and a 35% greater incidence in bone cancer as older dogs in females that were pre-puberty spayed, the thought now is absolutely let them let the females have their first heat and for the males, wait until they're about a year of age. Now, mind you, that second heat in a female comes around 14 months. It's every seven months. So you have time to let them have their first heat and spay them after their first sometime before their second at around 11 to 12 months of age. So that's what I would recommend. And for the males, absolutely. Just be careful, obviously, once they become sexually mature, they're going to be more sexually active. They might pick up a scent, a female scent. They might run away. All these things could happen. But it's very important to know that I highly advise and talk to your veterinarian that a males, large breed males, you wait until around a year of age and even the females. And again, remember, we talked about it in the past that for females, when you're going to spay them, if you have a large breed, especially deep chested dog, and she's being spayed, meaning her, her abdomen is being entered, my, I highly advise thinking about talking about with your doc, the gastropexy procedure, which is tacking the stomach to the body wall to prevent bloat later on. So by waiting a little bit, you can potentially have a, a major impact on curbing osteosarcoma, bone cancer, as well as if you pexy the stomach of the females to prevent bloat later on in life. Oh, and just so you know, there are no mandatory state laws about spaying and neutering, and the AVMA does not like to get involved, the American Veterinary, and I trust, I, I, I support this, in a doctor's personal practices at his or her hospital. So we don't get involved in, in advising. We, the best we can do is teach you pros and cons to at least encourage conversation with your veterinarian. If you certainly have any questions, you feel free to get a hold of me anytime, drjeff at petliferadio.com, drjeff at petliferadio.com. Be happy. Just leave me a phone number. I will call you, and we will talk about whatever the issue is. But um, anyway, it's so interesting that the AVMA came out with a statement about this, and uh, that tells you kind of how important it is that the AVMA is getting involved. So anyway, thanks for joining me here on Pet Life Radio's Ask the Vets with Dr. Jeff. We will be here next week, same time, 9 in the in the West, noon in the East, and wherever you are in between. And uh, thanks again to our sponsors, Provecto, 12-week protection, fleas and ticks, save this life, microchip, more than a cone, raising awareness of animal welfare through the arts. And um, looking forward to being with you here next week. Have a great week, everybody. Bye-bye. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.